Welcome to the Legendarium. Today, Craig, Ryan, Todd, and Ken tackle Sphere by Michael Crichton. Will the horror sci-fi thriller classic from Craig's childhood capture Ryan's imagination? Probably not. Now let's find out why. As the great Ken Johnson once said, what's going on? I did say that. Yeah, you did. Uh, yeah. So everybody, Copyright Marvin Gaye. What, what is going on? Uh, welcome to uh, Craig's House of Illness. Uh, I am Craig Hanks, and I am ill, and I don't care, because it's been so long, it seems like so long since we've been sitting down together in a room together to podcast that, I, yeah, I don't care how sick I am. Together. I'm doing this. So... Uh, let's introduce the rest of our folks. Uh, now I keep him in a sock drawer until it's time to record, which of course explains the clean laundry smell. It's Todd Wenty. I do smell like cotton linen. And he's so old, his exhaust port is almost measuring two meters. It's Ken Johnson. (laughs) And the doctor says he's impressed. (laughs) And I'm putting him on a strict no sugar diet, but you know what? I like him bitter. It's Ryan Bruckman. (laughs) Hmm, Bitter. I can deal with that taste. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> welcome back, everybody. I am... We've been gone like seven weeks, and that's the best you could come up with? No, you know what? I think he's saving the best stuff for the midweek episode. Oh, yeah. You know what, Ken? I thought yours was pretty good. So, You're, whatever. I agree the exhaust with port, you. The exhaust port comment, that's 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 prime gold. Two-meter exhaust port. Looks <laughs> like a womp rat. We're going to be able to... Never mind. At least I don't have X-Wing shooting at it yet. Well, let's hope your wife doesn't have a T-16 back home. Oh! Okay. How was that Fifty Shades of Grey review? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Um, so this week, we are continuing... Uh, we are almost wrapping up, actually, our... Uh, Heroes of Sci-Fi series. Yeah, we're closing in. Uh, We're coming up on the end. I think we might have one or two after this. But this week we are doing Sphere by Michael Crichton, uh, which hopefully if you're listening to this, you've read. uh, Because we are going to spoil it. And it's got a a very um, needs-to-not-be-spoiled ending. Oh, yeah. That doesn't mean you have to like it. But, uh, but yeah, it's got a great ending. So, yeah, if you haven't read it and you're at all interested, uh, shut off the podcast, go read it. It's a pretty quick one, uh, unless you're Ryan and you do it in 25 different installments. Yeah. It's really not too much of a, a thick read, um, and, uh, and I guarantee you'll enjoy it if you like sci-fi. So, go check it out. I don't guarantee it. Fine. Freaking Todd. <laughs> now, what do you guys say to a quick synopsis of the book? Um uh, oh, Last chance to turn back now before you get spoiled because you can't. You really can't talk about this without spoiling. Actually, no. I didn't even finish my synopsis, so I'm going to get to uh, fears of the, and then it's just I'm winging it from there. So here okay. we go. Okay. Norman Johnson is a psychologist, uh, and he and a team of various other scientists are called to the South Pacific by the U.S. Navy to investigate an alien craft that has crashed at least 300 years ago. Dun, dun, dun. What they find is shocking, namely that it is in fact an American spacecraft from several decades in the future. Some are disappointed, others relieved to be out of the alien business, but the ship is actually nothing compared to what waits inside. In fact, they do find a large alien sphere, hollow with odd markings and no apparent entrance. But Harry, one of the crew, does get inside and seems to release a petulant emotional alien by the name of Jerry, who delights in manifesting the deepest fears 
of the various crew. So uh, Jerry's released. He's manifesting lots of monsters. He terrorizes the Navy habitat where they're all living a thousand feet under the water. And uh, craziness ensues for another two to three hundred pages until uh, three of the original, what was it, eight people? Eight. Three survive and make it back to the surface uh, where they choose to forget what has happened. Which is possible because that is the, the power of the sphere. It wasn't actually an alien inside as far as we know. What it was was some kind of crazy power that allowed each of the crew members who went inside to manifest their... Uh, what you call it, their subconscious fears and desires and whatnot. Whatever they could imagine, they could send out. Exactly. It was Earth all along. <laughs> okay. You blew it up! So, anyway, uh, did I miss anything important? Um, I mean, I know there's lots of things that happen. Um, favorite uh, favorite monster released? <laughs> I, I, I was terrified by the jellyfish. Still am. That's right. You have a. I this. I think this. Fear. This is kind of where the jellyfish thing came from. Actually, this. This. Yeah. What I can't remember which crew mem- crew member it was that got killed. Fletcher, maybe it was I, Teeny. Yeah. So, which by the way, as as a bit of foreshadowing, at some point, um, Barnes, the captain, is kind of taking them around the habitat and introducing them to everybody, and he says, "This is this is Teeny Fletcher," and then he's describing her role. And basically, he says, oh, Fletcher is just our final redundancy. Like, she knows all the all the systems and all the life support and stuff. And he says, she's just our final redundancy. And I'm going, if this teeny Fletcher had ever seen a horror movie ever in her life, then or, she would know to run away. Or a Star Trek episode. Yeah, there you go. Make sure she's not wearing red. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, what about you guys? Favorite monster? I, I thought the squid was perfectly scary in... The way he framed it, I thought, was was an outstanding way to, to make it suspenseful because he doesn't describe the squid you know, full out initially. the the part that uh, The part that that really got me was when I don't remember how many encounters with the squid it was in, but uh, where they're they're there at the uh, hatch at, at the airlock. And hello, Hank's cat. There's a cat on the table. Go on. Uh, they're they're there at the uh, they're there at the the hatch, and Ted's down by the by the airlock, and all of a sudden the tentacle swings in, grabs him, slams around, then takes him. Like, ah, holy crap! So that wonderful deep analysis, Ken. There you yeah. go. That Th- is level one at its finest. About a thousand feet deep. <laughs> so what about you, Todd? Um, for me, the scariest the the scariest thing in the entire book was the and and maybe it's because i spent my undergraduate my undergraduate field of psychology spent so much time studying that stuff when they finally figure out who jerry is Mm. for me that was the moment where i went okay now i really feel really awful about all of this it got really for me it got very 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 dark and very um uncomfortable so those uh who don't know harry is jerry harry goes inside and and he uh transmits a code to himself that he breaks and you know it's all subconsciously but he renames the alien jerry instead of harry you know and i've always wondered to disguise about that himself one, if he if he renamed it or if he 
just mistranscribed it himself. On yeah, I've, that's or on one that I've, That's one that I've always wondered about. How soon in the book did you figure that out? Um, I the first time I read it, I was nine, so I didn't until they told me. Oh, yeah. It took me. I was about. Um, it was about fifteen pages before they before they revealed it that I kind of was going. Oh, I think I know where this is going. Yeah, I had no idea. I made the mistake of knowing that I was under a time constraint and wanting to be able to speak to this, uh, doing reviewing on a synopsis of the book. And so I knew before I was reading what was going on. That's a mistake. Oops. Yeah, Don't, that's... This is a book that you, if, if you want to get the most out of it, you have to experience it for the first time without knowing anything other than mm-hmm. yeah. you know, maybe just a recommendation that you'll enjoy this. Um, so that was <clears throat> my first mistake was going through like, yeah, I know what's really going on here. I don't care about this. Now let's move on. Um, which could have lended to why I was falling asleep multiple times, that and long days. Um, but for me, the uh, the greatest monster in the story was actually the the purpose of the story, in my mind, um, was the reality of the human frailty. Like yeah, ooh, when, yeah, that's when the nice human one. frailty starts to be able to... Uh, have a weapon to manifest when it's able to put a weapon in its hand and be able to do physical harm we realize just how dangerous our imaginations and how dangerous we can be so i mean you can talk about you know the jellyfish or the the squid we're all scary everything but the fact is that the real monsters in it are the people are the people who aren't willing to deal with what they they, you know their shadow self Mm -hmm. um and that's what led to a lot of deaths and a lot of things and quite honestly if if they hadn't chosen to forget at the end, or supposedly two of them, I uh, chose to forget. One of them I don't believe did. Um, dun 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 dun. Because man, she still looks beautiful. Hmm. But <laughs> I've got a different take on that. They quite uh, quite honestly, if they hadn't forgotten, they would have had to deal with the fact that they at some point they have to realize that their imagination, specifically Harry, especially that their his imagination was what killed every crew member down there. Right. So. Um, yeah. And now, thankfully, he just forgets the whole thing because that's the power of the sphere. So, yeah, the the ending of the book, for any who missed it, is that uh, given this power that they have, that they can manifest their their subconscious desires, Norman, the psychologist, tries to get them all, once they've resurfaced, he gets them all in touch with their deepest desires and convinces them that the best thing they can do is forget that they ever found the ship or the sphere uh, and forget that they ever had this power uh, which they do. so. But I think one thing that's interesting about that discussion that they had is that Harry had already come to the conclusion, um, falsely, that everyone was going to die because they re- he realized that if the people in the future had known about the ship being found, uh-huh. that something would have... You know, what happened, and the, the way they discovered the ship and, and all the, pre- the things that they had pre- uh, done before to prepare it, uh, basically said that they didn't know what they didn't know yeah. what was going to happen. That was a great paradox at my, the beginning of the book. Well, my and my thought was that uh, I can't say that I'm in love with the ending. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. It seemed to me that Michael Crichton was more concerned in the ending with closing loopholes than with telling a story. Yep. You know, it wasn't about uh, you know teaching any lessons or anything like that. It was just, oh yeah, there's that weird paradox. How do I get rid of that? It, and it that was felt, it. It felt very. I've got five pages left. How am I going to finish this? Yeah, or, yeah. or I've got to turn this into my editor. Yeah, I got to turn morning. this in now. Well, and <laughs> this, and I can't speak to Crichton's other writings, but um, 
in general, the the books that he's written, from what I'm from what I know, it seems to be let's choose an extraordinary circumstance to put people in, and then explore a human condition while they're mm-hmm. in there, which is actually fairly common in a lot of storytelling. Um, in this case, it's trapped a thousand feet under the sea with a mysterious creature attacking you or whatever. Um, but to me, we got to the end of this, and there was nothing left to explore. There was nothing left for him to really delve into. And he spent a lot of time in the book also being like, let me explain to you how the science works here, which is really the only reason this fits in science fiction. To me, this is more of a thriller than a science fiction. Oh, totally. Agreed. If it wasn't for the fact that many pages were dedicated to being a textbook for dummies version of explaining, you know, space-time theory, physics, things like that. There was a lot of times where, you know, here, let me explain to you how this works and why this is going to have an impact 30 pages down the road when you're facing the situation. (laughs) That's exactly what the first two parts felt like to me. It's like he is... It, it felt like I am explaining to you how smart I am. Well, and can I? Just and he is very—he was very smart. At a, as a as a nine-year-old reading this book, this stuff was blowing my mind, man. It really was, and because I, it was science for I, dummies. I'd, I'd, I'd be I, lying if I said that I didn't learn some of my basic, you know, astrophysics from Michael Crichton. You know, this and, is and where I, I got appreciate it. the taking the time and doing the research to make sure that it's not accurate and not just creating because that would move this from science fiction into fantasy if he just made up his own right. reasoning for these things to be the way they are. He held true to a to the laws that exist and govern the earth at, at, the, at, at least as they were understood at the time. At the time, yeah. yeah. And then he put in something that allowed them to bend the rules, a feature that allowed them to bend the rules. So it still classifies as science fiction. You could, but it really it really straddles that line, doesn't it? Into yeah. fantasy, yeah, you know, it really does. A lot of Michael Crichton's work uh, straddles that line. He, we we attribute him in so many environments as being a, a great contemporary science fiction writer because of his willingness to explore the science involved. If you're, if you're looking at Jurassic Park, if you're looking at Timeline, if you're looking at the Andromeda Strain, one of his earlier works, mm-hmm. um, he, he really spends an awful lot of time explaining the, explaining the science behind why this should be something to be concerned about and then, and then presenting us with the problems that go along with it if it were to, to happen. Um, and in a lot of ways, in a, in a very real uh, in a very clinical definition of science fiction, yeah, that fits. But I think for for a lot of us who have grown up on Star Trek and Star Wars and and more the space opera kind of science fiction, um, even those that were growing up on the Flash Gordon and the Buck Rogers stuff, um, I th- I think that's where a lot of people think that they're picking up science fiction or think that they know what they're picking up when they pick up a Michael Crichton novel and then find out them that what they've got is something very very different indeed. Yeah, it's. Um... As I was reading it now, I, I hadn't read a Michael Crichton book in a long time and before we picked this back up, but it reminded me a little bit of reading a Dan Brown without the cheesy religious stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the scientific version of that. Yeah, I'd buy that. So, anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, about his writing style. Um, Todd, you mentioned <laughs> something. We have a, just so that you folks listening know, we have a little Legendarium uh, Facebook chat that even if we're not recording for five or six weeks in a row, we're on that every day, <laughs> bothering each other. With one day we'll print it as our book. We know. Oh, it'll be the book that we print. It'll, it'll be the worst book of oh, all yeah. time. It's going to be a lot like the Daredevil texts. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, Todd, you said something. What was I even talking about? Oh, just about how cinematic uh, he is. Michael Crichton is as he writes. It's it's almost like he's writing a screenplay. He writes a screenplay and then novelizes it. Yeah, yeah. Right? In, in fact, one of the things that he said uh, about a lot of his earlier works, especially, um, is that he wrote them as 
uh, designed to be com- competition for the in-flight movie. Um, and so he's, uh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, he's thinking. Yeah, see, I told you I wasn't going to just read it from Wikipedia. Yeah, there you go. Um, the, uh, the the thing that's interesting about his writing, his writing style is that it is very much about the scenes. It's about the setup. It's about the execution of the scenes. And when I when I read the book and then when I saw the film, I was impressed that there was so little variation from book to film adaptation. Uh, when compared with a lot of other science fiction stuff that I've read and watched, um, there's a there's generally a lot of change. There's a lot of there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of displacement for where story occurs and those kinds of things. In this particular one, it doesn't happen as much. And with the rest of with with a lot of the rest of his stuff, he's he's very conscious of the visual element to the storytelling. I think that's in part because he is a child of the 50s and 60s when television starts to become much more a part of our our everyday life um and and the the visual impact the way that those scenes fit together uh is an incredibly important part of someone who grew up with television as their primary information medium rather than individuals like uh, isaac asimov or arthur c Clarke, who grew up in an environment where maybe radio or Literature was their primary information medium, at least from their early time, from their early years. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I really like that he does, uh, and this is something that is harder to do. I feel like it's harder to do in film, but the foreshadowing that he does uh, yeah. of what's coming up. Now, there was a, a scene that I, I, this is probably my fourth time through the book. I tend to reread books, but I haven't read it in a long time, not since I was a teenager uh, and something I never caught before was as they're descending, they go in the submarine, they're going down to, you know, a thousand feet. They hit a certain point and they cross through that, that current and they call it the river and they go through it. And then, uh, so Norman is riding with Ted and Ted hands up a, a $10 bill to the pilot. Norman says, what are you doing? He says, well, it's customary to pay the pilot. Right. And I, I went, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. that's Charon yeah, and they're yeah. crossing the river Styx. Yeah. This yeah. is an actual descent into hell. Yeah. Like that is what a great little, just, you know, if you're nine, you don't get it and that's fine. The story moves on. But if you do get it, what a great little way to, to kind of foreshadow. Like this is not going to go well for these people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I really liked that moment a lot. Um, or, uh, or Barnes, he says at some point he says, never, Never ask a reason for Navy regulations. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my that favorite was a moments. Funnier moment. I liked Barnes as a character because he he was, but again, with the exception of the of the three who survive, it seemed like everybody else was pretty two dimensional. Um, they were inserted because they have to be the appropriate characters to fit these appropriate roles. They're not, stereotypes, that's, not characters. That's yeah, something exactly. I noticed uh, in. I, I I wrote a note down saying that. Uh, saying that it was ep- evidence of stereotypical characters. And I can't remember now why I wrote down that note, but it, it, it is just pervasive throughout that everybody, even, even the guys that survive, it, it is just, everybody is kind of cookie cutter. Yeah. You know, this is the protagonist. This is the antagonist. This person is here for this. This person is here for that. And you can tell that they're just there to fill their role. Well, and there's, there's no, not much beyond that. They're each, they, they each, uh, exhibits some sort of common human characteristic. So you have right. Harry, who's way too cerebral. You have Beth, who's the overcompensating feminist. You have Barnes, who's the 
the uh, military the man. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have Norman, who... Who bas- saves us all with who, his understanding of, of psychology. Thank you, you Dr. Spock. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but is that what... So, Todd, you were going to say you like Barnes. Is it because I, if I don't miss my mark, he's about the only character that goes through any sort of a journey, any sort of a, a an emotional or psychological journey. Yeah, I think the reason that I liked him is because I always... I always pictured him as Sarge in the Halo series. Um, <laughs> I, I I just I see this um, I see this very matter of fact, no nonsense. This is my world. This is the way this world works, and this is what we're going to deal with. And in spite of the fact that something weirds is is going on, I'm trained to deal with weird. Um, and and he just kind of he he accepts things differently than the rest of the team. He accepts the fact that they have to deal with it rather than the fact that they have to understand it. That, that was my feeling of it. And, of course, that doesn't go so well for him. But um, then it's yeah. not supposed to. And one of the things that's really interesting about um, about a lot of science fiction that comes out of our current time period is our mistrust of military, our 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 interest, our, our thought process. And I think I, I'm trying to remember if it's Norman or if it's, uh, or if it's uh, Harry who talks about the idea that if, if the military truly understands what's going on with this, then, then all, then everything's going to fall apart. And we're, we're looking at the destruction of civilization as we know it. And, and when I think about those kinds of things, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded over and over and over again, how often that theme comes up. We cannot trust the military. We cannot trust the military. Again, Michael Crichton's writing during the 1960s, um, a period of time when the military was not in its, in its greatest heyday, uh, a period of time when there was a lot of mistrust of military figures in general, um, 60s all the way up through the 80s, the Iran-Contra affair. I mean, there's a, there's a lot. There's no end of uh, exposed problems that occur with the military. And so it, in a lot of ways, it feels very much like a, a, a work of its time. I'm not sure. I, I think in that case, in, in that particular piece, eventually Sphere is going to be seen as the quintessential late 20th century science fiction novel in the way that it approaches some of these issues. And if it were written today, it would have the police instead of the military, right? Possibly, and and certainly there would be the token politician that got thrown along for the ride um, because he was responsible for oversight, uh, congressional oversight or funding or something like that. And so I think that, I think if we were, if, if this is pushed just a little bit forward, Michael Crichton would have used um, different caricatures, different stereotypes to fill in these spots. But I think we would have still seen them being used as plot fillers. They're plot devices. They're not characters. Yeah, totally. I I, yeah. I made light of the overcompensating feminist, but that was that was a, a thing. That was uh, in the 70s. You had second wave feminism really had taken root. And a lot of those people who had uh, either uh, either grown up with that or taught their kids that or whatever. Anyway, she really exemplified that. Um, anyway. And yet is a victim of it at the end. Oh, doesn't she still look pretty? Hmm. That's right. Oh, yeah, you were going to say something about that earlier. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, no. I, what I was going to say at the end, I'm not sure. And, and this was one of the things my wife and I, when we first read the book and then watched the movie, both of us were wondering if Beth had used her imagination to forget about the sphere or to remember the sphere in spite of everybody else or to forget about the spe- the sphere but make her look pretty. 
we weren't sure. One final wish. One no, final, final wish, wish, and her final wish was, but I really still want to be pretty. Huh. And so, um, you know, that's... The, but then I have, I have always had an issue with... Um, the contrivance of sending a ship back in time. I'm, I've, I've, I've always, I've always struggled with that piece of his setup. Um, I've kind of wondered if he was, if he was poking fun, as much as he was exploring the scientific aspect of what time travel is and what ha- what happens with causality loops and those kinds of things. Uh, from my perspective, it could just as easily have been somebody bumbling across the sphere and thinking, oh. I can't deal with the fact that it might be alien technology. Maybe it's going to be something from the fu- from our own future that comes back to us, and then oh, that's what gets manifested. I don't. I know that what? Michael Crichton was not going to that direction, but you know, it's just you one of those. Really things. lost me, buddy. Sorry. I'm. I actually would be more interested in knowing the story of the crew on that ship than I was of the crew that was in in the habitat. In, this, in the habitat. Yeah. To know what their journey was, why they, you know, finding the sphere. Because that was there was a lot of mystery and and it needed to be left for this story, it needed to be left in mystery because we just needed, you know, all we need to know about the sphere is that it gave a power to the people who went in to manifest their imagination. <laughs> did you did you just say power to the people? <laughs> yes, I, yes, I did say it. Just My checking. fist was not raised. I was so. say, put your <laughs> hand down. Alright. But uh I I think that the story of the crew and you know why it ended up back where it did is a more compelling story to me than what we had here. And he just glossed over it, and yeah, that bugged me too. There was one other thing that it's that, not the story he wanted to tell. I you know. could go read that book. It's not. And there, there was one other thing in his writing that bugged me is we we finally get in the sphere with Norman, and immediately the writing switches from past tense to present tense. I don't know if you oh, guys caught that. I didn't but notice. Did that. you think that was an accident? No, I thought it was on purpose. I just didn't, you just like, didn't it. like it. Okay, I just, That's I just, fair enough. It bugged me as I was reading it. I'm like, it just throws my groove. I don't like it at all. But Ken, you don't have a groove. Speaking of writing things, this is totally off topic. Just briefly, I just started reading *Heir to the Jedi*, and it's told first person perspective from Luke Skywalker, and I'm like, going, oh mm, dear, mm, not sure I'm liking this. I'm glad you told me that now, though. I'll tell you if it's speaking, good. But so far, I've been going. I don't want to be in Luke Skywalker's head. Let me just stay outside of his head. Yeah, no. they're they're never. That's never a good idea. So anyway, uh, back to Sphere. Uh, okay, so here's a question I wanted to ask you guys: Did is this book something of an indictment of the Enlightenment? So there's a lot of of hay made in this book about um, reason and intellectuality over or under um, emotion and psychology. Understanding your emotions seems, in this book, it seems to be more important than than uh, the scientific intellectual stuff that they, that they all have to go through. Hmm. I think I'm going to say Rorschach on this. If that's what you want to find in it, you'll find it there. I don't necessarily know that's its intent, though. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. I don't necessarily know that he was going for that. I think it's just kind of where he ended up. There were a couple of points late in the book um, where Crichton actually let practicality rule the day rather than you know actually doing something when he's trapped in the... He's trapped in the laboratory. Beth has trapped him in the lab, and he's trying to get out. Yeah, and he's great re- scene. Oh yeah, uh, it, it's. I wrote down a couple of notes on that. He's recalling back to one of his old professors, professors, Doctor Stein, and 
everything Dr. Stein is telling him is what you're doing isn't working. He's, he's trying to come up with, okay, what can I do? And every time he comes up with an idea, he tells himself why that won't work. So he ends up just standing there and Dr. Stein in his memory is telling him what you're doing is not working. Stop telling yourself this won't work and do something. something. Yeah. Just go do it. And then he says... You always have a choice. Yeah, and then, he's, and then he says he's he's trying to figure out why one of his things will work. And, and the, the the quote is, Dr. Stein says, understanding is a delaying tactic. You're not trying to understand. You're trying to not do something. You're trying to delay whatever it is that I you don't want to do. Idea. Oh, I both of those quotes, that whole scene with Dr. The, his flashback memory with Dr. Stein, I'm just like... That is what I keep telling my kids. I love that idea. Like, <laughs> doing something is better than doing nothing. Don't just sit there and think. And I tell myself this all the time, by the way. Don't just sit there and think about what you want to do. Go do what you want to do. Go do what you have to do. Don't sit there and tell yourself why it won't work or why someday you'll do it. Of course, that being said, don't do stupid things if you can but help do, 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 it. But all things being equal, doing something smart is better than doing something stupid. But the, doing nothing is just as stupid. I think the key in that in the in the phrase that he uses in there, understanding is a delaying tactic, and sometimes you need to delay on something, and it's all about the timing. Um, yeah. Some things it's worth taking the time to understand to ensure you make a proper decision. Other times, if you are just not wanting to make the decision, you'll try to understand so you can make a better decision simply for the sake of delaying. And I think that's in this case where he's going to die soon he does not have the time to try and understand the situation and so he has to make a decision and go to action and for a lot of us that's you know i i really personally i strive to understand things quite frequently as much as i can so that i can make good decisions and and make uh you know uh, understand where things are coming from so that i uh don't do something stupid i don't do something stupid right. or that i i can understand what the other side is dealing with um to come up with a solution uh, but in it, I think it's all about uh, the time aspect in this. If you have the time to understand, I believe it's worth understanding. But if you don't have the time, go to action. The, yeah, then get going. There, there, there's a quote that I always use in um, in exercise in you know trying to get in shape or whatever. The the quote being, "I'm too fat. I'm too I'm, fat. I'm too fat. I need to do something." No, if if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you always got. And that's, you know, that's, and that's basically fat. And Fatter. that is fat. Yes. You know, um, going back to your to your original question, do we think this is an indictment against the Enlightenment, against... Or I, I, maybe that's too strong language, so let me walk that back just a little bit and, and say that perhaps it's questioning yeah. assumptions about the Enlightenment. And I would, and I would tend to say, you know, perhaps it's a, it's, it's a piece of that. I would, I would also think that it isn't, I, I, and where I thought you were going to go is, is, is it an indictment against um, our social norms that we had in place during that period of time? Um, there's a lot of, um, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence that is starting to, to percolate through um, different channels that challenge the common or or the the prevailing um, avant-garde intellectualism of the seventies um, that uh, that parenting without without corporal discipline is necessarily the best thing in the planet. Well, there's a lot of studies that are coming out now that are saying you know slapping a child's hand is not necessarily the worst thing that you can possibly do, or giving them a spanking is not necessarily the worst thing that you can possibly do. 
Um, there's, I don't there's, think anybody ever disputed that, Todd. <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> um, you should have sat in some of the psychology classes with me. Um, but when when we when we start looking at the way that this book question and the for me at least it was the one fundamental question: Can you make rational decisions when you are emotionally? Um, I don't want to say aroused, but that's what we would say charged. In, a, in a psychological environment. Yeah, emotionally charged. Because all of the things that go wrong, all of the things, or at least as, I, as I'm as i thinking back through it, um, and I should have made more notes like Ken did, but all the times that things go really, really, really wrong are when somebody's emotional state gets away with them. And when they stop thinking rationally about what's going on and anxiety starts to kick in and then the irrational fears start being manifested. Mm -hmm. I find myself wondering at the same time, could they have used, could someone else have used their abilities with the sphere to have answered all of these kinds of situations had they been able to maintain some emotional balance? I wonder if the answer to my own question um, comes in something that you just said is is the idea here that the principles of the the enlightenment you know uh, scientific theory and and uh intellectualism reason can those things be uh applied to our emotions can we learn to understand our own emotions through experimentation uh through reasoning and if we can then is that how one achieves ultimate mastery yeah. of his subconscious? Well, and again, you looking at it from the from the time period. Um, um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a child of I'm a child of science fiction. I'm a child of Star Trek, and that was one of the fundamental pieces of the Star Trek model. Right, going say through it, all say of that. It. No, okay, I thought oh, you had a not. joke. No, but he's but he's looking agitated. We we'd better be careful. I'm when wondering you, if when you say you're a child of. A child of the Star Trek generation. I, I, I just I, as I as I read through that and as I hear you talking about that, I, f- I find myself saying, "Well, yeah, this is Michael Crichton attacking all Vulcans in the in in our environment and challenging them to a to a duel of emotional control." I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Uh, anyway, I think we've about hit the end. Unless you guys have things you want to bring up, I was going to ask you for some final thoughts. Any more notes that you guys want to bring up? Okay. So ultimately, final thought is, um, is this book recommendable to the general public? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. It's, it's not going to tax your brain. Um, it, it is a good read. And like we some say, parts of it might, I don't, I don't some, know. Of, some of it might, he gets a little bit, he gets a little bit uh, technical in a couple of things uh, when he starts talking, you know, human condition and stuff, but in some ways, I would say that this is, with the possible exception of Asimov, this is the heaviest sci-fi reading we've done so far, as far as intellectual rigor. As, yeah, as far agree. as intellectual stuff, but agree. it's it, it's something that the the common person uh, is going to read and, and come away saying, oh, hey, I understand different aspects of science a little bit better, because he gets he gets into detail about certain things without getting heavy with them you know like uh in terms of astrophysics and time travel and and uh uh, psychological experimentation that sort of thing i it's a good read you're going to get something out of it and it's not going to take a lot of time to read it yeah ryan you had the hardest time getting through this out of all four of us probably because of schedule more than anything else but uh yeah uh, but was there an aspect of you know i'm just not that interested this isn't that good a book 
There, uh, there wasn't. Again, I the caveat being I I read a synopsis which. In a thriller, the fastest way to make a thriller boring is to know the ending. Um, <laughs> Good call. So if you know if if you've listened to this and haven't read it, guess what? You're probably not going to enjoy the book yeah. as much yeah. as you would have if you would have uh, just read it before listening. Um, if you are looking to check Michael Crichton off your list as an author that you have read, uh, this wouldn't be a terrible one to to read through. There, I would say probably Andromeda Strain or Jurassic Park before this one. Um, and if you have time to just leisure read this is a good one if you were if you have very limited time i wouldn't recommend this one as the one to read i would find something else i would recommend uh something else that we've read you know uh Heinlein's of starship troopers um if you want a mental task foundation by isaac asimov is a mental task to read but you know it gives you a lot to think about yeah, but overall i would say this is a recommendable book if you've got the time to read it okay Todd, um, I, I'm I'm I am of two minds on this one. Surprise! Um, yeah, yeah. I'm always looking at different angles, right? Um, on one side, you. on one side, I would say if you want to read what science fiction looks like using current science to describe to set the stage for a science fiction book, I would say, yeah, this one isn't bad. Um, but my disappointment with it is that it goes from science fiction to thriller, and really doesn't stay within the science fiction genre. Um, and, and that was disappointing to me when we talk about, and really Michael Crichton does that in everything that he does. He said he uses science to set the stage and then it ceases to be science fiction. Science doesn't solve the problem. Science creates the problem and then human beings solve the problem. Um, so from that standpoint, if you're, if you're looking for something else that you want to look at, that's more, um, that that's a different science fiction read from, from our modern day. Um, I, I would agree with Ryan. I think there are some other choices, um, I think I'm agreeing with you for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you though, the, the, whenever, whenever I read this book or I talk about this book, the one that I talk about or think about in context with it is abyss. Mm, okay. and, and I would nice. say if you're, if you're making the choice between reading this one or abyss, read both because they both are so much fun and they deal with the one piece of this that I really love and that gets missed in a lot of science fiction is dealing with that inhospitable environment of deep sea and of deep sea survival. And both of them deal very interestingly with how do we keep human life alive down, down underneath the sea. And it's very similar to how we have to keep human life functioning in the vacuum of space. Yeah. And so between those two, I mean, that's, that's the one thing about this book that I would say, eh, it keeps my interest. It kept my interest all the way through because of that piece. But like I say, if you're trying to decide between those two, read them both because they're fun. Okay. All right. Not having read Abyss, I would recommend Abyss. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Ryan, not a huge fan of this. So uh, I'm interested in hearing what everybody else thinks, of course. So definitely uh, shoot us an email, thelegendarianpodcast at gmail.com, or hop on our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Uh, just because uh, this is kind of the most... Um, splitting of all the books that we've read so far yeah. it's it's uh the least likely to ever become a uh, quote-unquote classic um yeah. but uh but it's i think uh, but the that's likelihood not because it's a bad book i think the likelihood of anything that michael crichton writing being considered a classic is slim to none is slim to none for at least a hundred years 
It's oh, gonna, it, it, yeah, he'll be forgotten. His, his writings are more likely to become classic as movies. I, I Jurassic buy that. Park, yeah, yeah. Jurassic Park will go down in history. Okay, well, and anyway. Let's be honest. We all heard, um, uh, oh, now I can't, I can see his face, but I can't remember his name. Um, short little cute actor. What? Um, Danny DeVito. Graduate, not He's, Danny DeVito. Oh, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. Did we all hear Dustin Hoffman's voice through the entire book? No, no. I was actually, that's something I was going to say was that um, of all the casting choices, the only one that really stuck in my mind was Sam Jackson. Yeah, me too. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I went okay. back and I saw the movie after I read the book, but having knowing nothing of the movie when going into the book, I did hear Sam Jackson through the entire time I read Harry. See, I, I heard guess. Don Cheadle. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. That was loud. Sorry. Sorry. Um, so my final thought, uh, this was really fun for me to, to read again, uh, in light of the horror episode that I participated in mm. several weeks ago, because that's one thing that this does. It's not just a thriller. It's borderline horror. Yeah, it is. Uh, the way that he treats the monsters that come along. Uh, and, and that was a lot of fun for me to kind of get into that mindset of, uh, of the horror novel. Um, I can't say that I've ever read a, a straight-up horror novel, but uh, maybe I will now, because I, I think I enjoyed that more than I would the movie horror version of it. Anyway, all right, ladies and gentle people, uh, we are going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for listening, uh, and uh, thank you for liking us on Facebook, because I know you've already done that. Uh, and we will talk to you all in a few days. Uh, we'll be, I think we're going to be recording a midweek this week. That's right. Uh, we'll see. So anyway, uh, stay tuned, you guys. We are going to get back on track, uh, and try to get into more of a weekly groove. Uh, we, uh, we do have some vacations coming up, but, uh, but we'll let you know. We'll try to get better at, uh, at putting out some good content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.